I'm Prime Minister Boris Johnson and you're listening to Brits in the Big Apple with Hannah Young, Consul General. I'm Hannah Young. Steve Ellis is the Executive Vice President of Ad Strategy and Business Development at Viacom CBS, responsible for transforming the advertising business side of the television and media conglomerate. Before that, Steve was the founder and CEO of Husay, leading campaigns for hundreds of notable brands such as Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Google, and H&M, to name but a few. Steve has also founded Pump Audio, a US-based music licensing company that represented independent artists and their music worldwide, placing them in TV, ads, video games, and film. He's even dabbled as a musician himself. Steve, welcome to Brits and the Big Apple. Thank you for having me. Nice to be here. Um, do you want to um, kick off by telling us how you arrived in New York and, and perhaps giving us a brief overview of your career journey so far? Yes, I love summarising 30 years of struggle into 30 seconds. And the good news is I can do it too, which is somewhat depressing, but that's, uh, I'm happy to do it for you. Yes, um, it's quite simple. I, I, uh, I'm from Northampton in England, the middle of England. Um, and I was looking at university after school in England and it wasn't particularly inspiring to me. I, I remember the University of Lancaster on a particularly grey day and thinking, well, this might not work for me. I'm not sure. Um, by chance, I had an American friend in high school. His mother was a journalist, actually, worked for, strangely enough, for ITV and CBS in, in London. And uh, he was like, you know, you should think about college in America. Um, they have these business schools over there we don't really have in Europe. And my family was sort of entrepreneurial and for many, many generations. So I, uh, I looked into college in America and I applied to a couple knowing absolutely nothing about them um, and was accepted into Wharton, uh, the School of Business as an undergrad. And I, people don't believe me when I tell you, I really had never heard of it. I'd never heard of it, didn't know what it was. Um, and my father certainly didn't know what it was, but to his, uh, to his great happiness, once he heard it was supposed to be cool and it was in America and it was about business, he was willing to allow me to to wander across the, the pond, as they say, to go to college here. So that's how I came to America, was to go to university there. And I wanna say now, back then, you're talking about 1988, I think Wharton was 100% finance. You know, They weren't entrepreneurial. Everyone who went to Wharton as an undergrad in particular, I forget how many kids, it was 300 kids or whatever they would take every year, was, was purely planning on going to Wall Street. And I had zero desire to go to Wall Street. So. Um, they, they probably saw something in me that I didn't know at the time, probably, you know, assuming my background of, of self-employed people might be somewhat of an indicator, but I was already into being a musician. So my master plan was come to America because I loved American music, you know, like everyone does. And I was like, yeah, this will be great. So I ended up coming for that reason. That's how I was here. And to compress the next 10 years of consistent failure into a nutshell, I, I did my time in Philadelphia and I, I love, you know, Philadelphia is my home, my born hometown in America, as I like to say. So I'm an all Philadelphia sports fan, but um, I spent the next 10 years as a musician. I graduated from Wharton. Everyone else went to Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. And I ended up signing a, a record contract with a tiny independent label in Atlanta, Georgia, um, which apart from the fact that it introduced me to my wife was a total disaster, um, but a lot of fun. We made an album in New Orleans at a studio that Daniel Anwar had built. It was a beautiful place. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, that turned into a catastrophe of the classic music variety. 
I persuaded my wife to move to New York from Atlanta, um, despite having no plan whatsoever except to carry on in music. She's an incredibly patient woman, as you'll come to learn. Um, and because I couldn't afford to live in New York, I tried to find a place that I could afford to live in. And that's how I found upstate New York, which is really where I based my home, now the Hudson Valley. Um, but I spent the next five years uh, doing, you know, tiling work and plumbing work and painting houses while I tried to get another record contract, which I, I did with Columbia Records for about a week. So I, in the mid 90s, when English rock bands were selling records, um, the incredibly sophisticated music business was like, this guy seems like he's English and plays rock. Why don't we give him a contract? Um, and that was also a disaster uh, for a variety of reasons I won't bore you with. Um, but I did end up reading the contract that I signed. And uh, the lawyer at the time in the music business said to me, well, Steve, I don't think I've ever had an artist read the contract before. Um, anyway, I tell that story because that's really the moment once I got dropped from Columbia was when I was like, hmm, I might need to start contributing to the income in the household. At that point, I was 28, 29. My wife was a school teacher uh, in, in outside of Poughkeepsie. And um, it was time for me to think about like uh, participating in the responsibility, especially as she wanted to have children. So basically terror forced me into business, uh, the fear of parenthood. I was bartending at the time in the village of Tivoli, New York. And um, I started a business representing people like myself who'd been dropped from record companies who owned their own music, but whose music was available to be licensed to TV shows and commercials. And no master plan, just I quit bartending when my son was six weeks old, not a sensible thing to do, and started a business, also not sensible. And um, we built uh, a business in the village of Tivoli, New York, over the next seven or eight years, which we sold to Getty Images, a big music licensing company that basically was the biggest music licensing company of its sort, but also it, it shared the revenue with the artists. The artists kept control and ownership of their music. And we essentially were like a sort of mass agent for their music. Um, and that very quickly is how I went from coming to America to getting into business in about 15 years of madness. Um, so that, that was the first wave. And that was how I ended up really in business in New York. Wow. That's an incredible story. Comical. Um, not least uh, that you um, you ended up in business school, but you then became a musician. Oh um, yes, I have a great story. I was I was tiling a woman's fireplace in Atlanta, Georgia. I worked uh, in Atlanta with another English guy I found in a bar, and he, he was the as my wife likes to say, when I met you, you weren't even the plumber or the tiler. You were the plumber and tiler's assistant, which is true. Um, but I was tiling this lady's fireplace and she goes, uh, you know, what are you doing here? This English guy. And, and I said, oh, you know, I told her and I went to Wharton. And she goes, what? She goes, uh, you know, I work at uh, Morgan Stanley down here and we hire these people from Wharton. Why are you tiling my fireplace? I said, well, I told her. So I think for probably a decade, I was the lowest earning graduate in the history of that school. Yeah. So. But amazing to look back on it and think that you managed to maintain the creative streak but also hone the business acumen. And I mean, you talk about it as if it was a series of failures, but actually hearing your story, it makes me think you were really smart in knowing that you would need that framework to be able to you know, continue being an entrepreneur. So maybe actually that was a success. 
Well, you know, you do come as you get older, you come to realize that it's uh, 95% luck in almost everything and circumstance. Um, you know, when I was young and handsome and had a full head of hair, that was when I met my wife. So timing matters, you know, like, um, but it's, some of the stuff is just fortune. I mean, reading the record contract that I signed, I did realize I understood how to read them. I'd never studied any of that stuff, but when I read them, I was like, oh, I actually, this nonsense actually kind of makes sense. And the history of the music business is in the record contract. And they're, you know, if you read them today, it's the same. They haven't gotten any better. I think someone wrote the template in 1952 and they just kind of upgraded it over the decades. Um, and then when it, when it came time to sort of figure out how the heck I was gonna actually make any money, I, uh, you know, I have a genuinely problem with employment and authority normally, at least that was my default position. So I never really considered like corporate or anything like that back then at the time. So I had to figure out something. And just because I was in that space and I'd licensed one of my own songs to a commercial, I was like, oh, you know, this might work. And to your point, then one thing leads to another and you start to learn that, you know, the great thing about America, um, which I'm sure we'll touch on more than the difference I find often between America and everywhere else in this respect, you know, is that people lean to the yes here. You know, they, they, they didn't find a crazy bartender from Tivoli, New York, starting a music licensing business to be ridiculous. They were like, oh, well, the music's better. And if the process works and the system is working for us, great. You know, whereas I think, you know, in England or in Germany and some of these other places, you know, you'd find it a little harder for people to say yes to that. Yeah, that's interesting. And yeah, they like stories as well. And, you know, you've got a fascinating backstory and you, you know, you understand the industry because you've been in the industry. So I guess that gives you the credibility that, you know, helps. Yeah. You know, you need, as I'm sure in your own life and your own career, you know, you it's all about learning, you know, you just keep learning, keep learning, and you never really know when your, your path will cross with a bit of luck and mm. the right people. It's always somebody to help you, you know. Um, uh, the truth about the Pump Audio story, the business story, is mm. the, the first client I had is the company I now work for, Viacom CVS, when it was just Viacom. And that client came as a result of a complete accident of fortune which was that I was playing music in a bar in Rhinebeck, New York, still in the tail end of my music efforts. Um, and the waitress in the bar ended up, who was from Rhinebeck, ended up working at MTV. And she's the one who called me when I started the business and said, you know, Steve, I remember you telling me this idea that you were, you know, going to use real music instead of fake stock music. And I have a friend here at MTV who's interested in talking to you because he hates the music he's working with. You know, they, they had these stock music companies, they would pay musicians to make music. And of course, if you pay someone to give away your music, you're not giving them the good stuff, you know. So that really is how that first deal got struck is this waitress in a bar who ended up at MTV, Laura Murphy, now a, a successful director, by the way, um, was an introduction to my first customer. Um, and, you know, that's classic American good fortune, you know. <laughs> so. That is amazing. And you talked um, earlier about the the strong thread of entrepreneurship in your family. And I wonder if you can just talk a little bit more about that and how you play that forward into your career, because you've, you know, as you say, you've um, founded a number of hugely successful businesses. How do you how do you keep that creative thread as you become more successful and I guess become a bit more corporate? Uh -huh. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's what they call me now, my family, Corporate Steve, by the way, that's the uh, that's the joke. <laughs> Um, look, I mean, 
so many things are by example. You know, I don't think there's anyone in my family of my father's generation who worked for anybody on my mother or my father's side, actually. Now I think about it, my mother's from Belfast. And, um, you know, so we're a long line of, of, uh, of sort of combination of problems with authority and self-employed, um, you know, so the also both immigrants, technically, you know, my my father was born when the British were still in control of India as part of the Jewish community in India. And then when the British left India, came to London, as most people did when partition occurred, who were part of the British side of the of the process. Um, I always said to him, I wish, you know, if he'd have come straight to America, I think he'd have had a completely different arc as well. But he was um, very also very, you know, lucky and successful in England um, in his own right. Um, so by example, I just always had family that was like, you know, we don't really do corporate jobs. We don't really do working for people. And so it wasn't that great a leap in my family for me to say, oh, yeah. You know, I've got a six weeks old baby. Why don't I start a business? They weren't like, you're out of your mind. You know, they were like, eh, you know, that sounds like a rational idea. So I think a lot of that is just, you know, um, that. But you're right. You know, it's also business in starting from scratch is being creative as well. Um, and so it's just a kind of type. You know, you have to be a bit of a lunatic, obviously, to, to do these things, even though today it's the rock star of today is the entrepreneur. Everyone wants to be, on, you know, Mark Zuckerberg. It does come with its perils, of course. But yes, I do have a lot of good examples in my family. Very lucky. And do you, I mean, do you see yourself as an entrepreneur still? Or do you see yourself more as corporate Steve? Or is it a mixture? <laughs> well, I think that, um, again, I'm very, very fortunate because the, the second company I started right on the back of the, of the first one, selling the first one to Getty, I, I stayed a little bit at Getty and then left and then started the second company. When, um, when I started and sold that, we basically started the sort of modern version of influencer marketing. That wasn't how we intended Husay to start, by the way. It started as a media business with celebrities. Uh, CAA, partner of mine, Amazon was the first investor, Comcast invested, very traditional venture setup. Um, but once we turned it into making campaigns for, for brand clients, and I came back from LA to New York for that, for that business, I, I, we were really focused in the New York ecosystem. And then um, really by chance, because that business was acquired by Viacom CBS, an opportunity came about as a result of that acquisition where the CEO and the CFO at the time, just you know, very um, generous uh, in their approach and very um, courageous in saying, you know, an entrepreneur, because that 20 years as an entrepreneur, and they were like, we'd love for you to come and try and see if you can help us you know, adapt the, the business we're in to become more digital and, and to become, you know, more cutting edge. And I, I think it's pretty unusual that a CEO, you know, of a public company in, a, in that position is willing to take a chance on someone, someone whose resume looks like 10 years of blank space where I was a musician and then two companies in a row. Um, but I'd like to think that it's been a really interesting challenge, honestly, like um, it's this huge amount of change, as you probably know, we we um, merged with CBS after the first phase of my time at Viacom and now now is the in the same position of Viacom CBS. I've just been incredibly lucky because the people I work with um, inside the corporation are Joanne Ross, John Halley, um, you know, Bob Bakish, of course, is the CEO. You know, these, these are terrific, straightforward people. 
who've been very straightforward with me and and we've been able to get a lot done in a you know totally different universe and from what i've been used to you know um startups as you know are, you're hiring you're constantly running out of money you're looking for customers it's 24 7 um and then in what we've been doing has been really making huge amounts of change happen in in, in emerged organizations so very different um but really really um challenging in an entirely different way so again I, i've just been very very lucky because mm. you know, different people it would be a very different experience i mean you're also very humble i should say i mean oh, not, I'm and not humble, no. <laughs> um, but talk to us a bit more about what you do and and i know you know you can't talk about specifics um but you know talk to us about what you do and i guess also just how the industry has changed even since you've been at Viacom CBS because it feels like you know I mean the whole digital agenda is just unrecognizable and it's generational and it's constantly changing you know what does that feel like from where you sit and yeah no it's a listen it's a massive topic and we're only in the you know middle stages of a transformation of an entire industry um and when I say an entire industry I mean marketing you know um the I was a terrible, terrible marketer when I was a musician, to be clear. Like I remember doing radio interviews in the US and they would ask me questions and I would give one word answers. You know, I was very English when I first started. Um, it's, so it's another classic case of irony that now I'm a marketer by default. But the industry of marketing is, is the challenge. You have a client um, structured in many ways for the television, almost the post-war television marketplace. Uh, you have the agencies themselves who, again, were significantly structured to serve that marketplace where television, of course, was the, the premium uh, you know, format. And then you have um, media companies like ourselves that, again, were built up around an incredible business around broadcast and then cable television. So there's just a lot of history built in there. And, and I'm a bit of a history, amateur history buff and it, as it comes to reading about things. And history matters and systems matter. And so when you when you step into a role like this where you're changing things a lot, you know, to address the market changes, you know, you've got so many dependencies, client dependencies, uh, um, our partners in the whole co, their their structure, and structure matters. So um, you can have all the great ideas in the world and the great strategy in the world, but you know, you can't in, you can't uh, you can't launch the D-Day invasion in a little dinghy. You know, you need the machinery too. So. It is, it is an incredibly complicated thing to do, and people's lives and livelihoods are involved in the companies that they've been part of. So changing companies and businesses is a historically very, very complicated thing to do. So I'm actually kind of proud of what we've been able to pull off in the Viacom and then the Viacom CBS process so far, because what we've had to really do is classic innovators dilemma, right? You've got a very large business that has an incredible success and let's be clear television advertising is the most successful format for advertising in history um you know you used to be able to run an ad on television and you could see the you know the product fly off the shelf the next day um and we really haven't found a replacement for that um for all the size of the audience on facebook and and on uh, instagram and on twitter and on tiktok um those formats do not cannot and have not replaced the television uh, in terms of its effectiveness. So whilst obviously they've taken a huge share of small business markets and others, like when you're trying to talk about mass market reach and effectiveness, there is still a place 
for television in its format and of course with streaming television and connected TV now. Um, and one of the transformative deals we did um, and uh, Viacom prior to the merger, Bob and, and everyone involved should take great credit is the acquisition of Pluto, which gave us you know, a real leading position in what they refer to as fast TV, you know, the ad supported streaming television. And that really was a transformative deal because it puts a flag in the ground to say, this is television. Now, the format is television. The screen is the size of a television screen and the ads are television ads and they are proven more effective. So that's been a big focus of our effort is to say, hey, let's stabilize the concept of video and format and premium content everywhere it is. A lot of the other work has been around structure and just ensuring that the focus of the company is balanced in, in ad sales. Um, because obviously, you know, building complex organizations that have multi-products is quite challenging. If you look at most companies, they do one thing really well. And that's usually a good idea for scale. But if you're trying to be an effective marketer today, you have to do a bit of everything. You can't just do, you can't just buy YouTube and you can't just buy TV. You've got to do that and everything in between. And we basically set about not only building a suite of products where you could buy broadcast, you can buy cable. We created and have launched something we refer to as IQ, which is the bundle of all of our digital streaming assets that we've made transactionally simple for our clients. And that is now the foundation of the video package. Um, and so it's really been about creating the product suite and then structuring the teams so that you get fair balance between the billion dollars that billions of dollars that run through television and the support products that might be smaller, but are as critical to servicing effective markets. Wow, that's really interesting. And particularly that television is still the, the dominant um, space for advertising. I mean, I hadn't thought about that because, um, you know, I spend a lot of time scrolling through Instagram and you see all the celebrity influencers and what have you. But really fascinating that TV is still um, the, the key. Um, and somebody said to me once, and you can tell me if this is right or not, um, you have to, if you're structuring a successful ad, you have to basically get as much in the first five seconds as possible before somebody presses the skip button. Is that, is there a successful way of structuring an ad or a marketing campaign? But yes, you absolutely have to adapt creative. And your point is exactly right. Each piece, the creative is slightly different and has to be slightly different to optimize for effectiveness. So yes, on a mobile device, you need to get some messaging in pretty early if it's an ad. Um, and you need to be very clear and very simple. And, and, and sometimes you'd be shocked at what works. And then when you talk about the bigger screens and the longer formats, you get more time to tell stories and make emotional connections. And so you can be a little bit more you know, creative, but that's one factor, right? The factor again is the, the size of the screen, the format itself, the creative, and the optimization as you move people through the experience. So obviously the demographic matters, the television obviously is older, live television is obviously older. So as you're working to reach the kinds of people you're trying to reach, you have to optimize for that too. And not every company, media company, client and agency is structured yet for that reality. And I would say that's probably the most interesting challenge for someone like me is, is you look at the, the work that has to be done and so much of it is, is you know, fundamental to the way people are incentivized. So it's a very different challenge for me, but it's been very interesting. And just talking about audiences and the, the, the kind of influence of audiences. And, and I wanted to bring in the diversity and inclusion lens, 
which is something that we've been talking about a lot on this podcast. Um, how does that how does that affect your work? And are you finding that your clients are even more switched on to, you know, having diverse people as part of their marketing campaigns, you know, really thinking about the messaging and how it lands and, you know, getting that feedback loop from audiences? How, do, how does that play into your work? It, you know, huge amounts of work to do uh, for everyone to ensure that um, representation behind and in front of the camera, in the messaging, in every part of hiring is um, in line with where it really should be. And, and the media industry, like many others, certainly, you know, has had um, has had its challenges. I would say a couple of things that um, are good are, you know, from a content perspective, Viacom, CBS, you know, from RuPaul through to the NFL, from CMT through to the Wild and Out show. You know, I think we do a very good job relative to others of representing a wide spectrum of lifestyle in general, um, to use an even broader term than, you know, the, the diverse of diverse is what you're trying to represent. Um, and then secondly, like, again, to be systemic about this thing, like my belief is you have to really change systems to change outcomes. And that takes real mechanics. You know, um, you want to do something that has fundamental long-term impact so that the process is changed. You know, we used to joke that, you know, if I would write that, and when I was, you know, starting companies, if I would write the how we work document, it would never get rewritten. You know, I, once I would write it, like five years later, you could literally pick it up and look the same. No one touched it because it just wasn't anybody's job to change the process once it was established, unless you encourage people to change it. That kind of mindset where they're constantly challenging people to break the process, you have to build that into the culture. And I, it's a long-winded way of saying, like, if you really want to be diverse genuinely and change things, you have to do a bit of that systemically. Um, and that's really, you know, a process issue. So we are, you know, changing a lot of processes, all of us in the media industry, uh, around production, around hiring, around messages. But I'd also like to see budgets change too, because in the end, everyone's judged also on how well they do for their business. And this is, you know, the, the proper representation of the US audience is good for business. You know, we have, you know, more than 50% of the country is visibly diverse at this point. Um, so it makes sense, of course, to, to represent effectively, but I'm not sure the budgets yet have been clearly, you know, aligned the same way, but the money has to follow it. Mm. Yeah. So again, it's, you know, as I get older, I've become a bigger and bigger appreciator of the concept of systems, you know, like, um, and how important it is to establish process, um, so that you can interchange, frankly, management or operation and still have drive the same outcomes um, because otherwise you know it's very hard to rely on the on the results i also learned a lot from being a musician by the way and what i mean by that is you know it, there's a lot about picking the right people for the right job you know you're in real trouble when the bass player tries to play the drums and the drummer tries to be the singer so you learn a, you learn a little bit of human behavior when you're in a band i can tell you what was your instrument Oh, I played the guitar very badly. I will tell you that both my both my sons, as a result of growing up around them, me and their mother, have the full history of music. So they've got, you know, they can sing most of the lyrics of most of the greatest Sinatra songs. And they're also incredibly versed in, in all the modern music coming from everywhere. So at least there's that benefit for them. Education of life. And I mean, just looking back on your career, which is just incredible. Um, what what lessons have you learned? What tips would you give to somebody who might be thinking about making a move into this space? 
Well, you know, I don't know that I, I hate to draw conclusions from anything because I'm, you know, I'm a bit of a fatalist. Like you can tell already, as it regards chance and and luck, and I have been very fortunate, um, and I've been helped along the way by a lot of many great many people, as you can tell. Whether it was you know uh, in chance encounters in bars or clients or customers who've been very supportive of the idea, but I, I certainly am a believer in 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 chance. Like you've got to get in the arena and try things, and um, I, you know I, I never was a, a, attracted to the to the pure cubicle approach. Um, and so it is ironic that I find myself as part of a terrifically large and great corporation and doing these things. Um, but, you know, you, there's, no, there's no downside. If you're lucky enough to be born in a country, um, you know, like America or, or like Western Europe, where mostly, you know, you'll be able to, to get up every day and do mostly what you feel like doing if you want to. I think it's it's on you to try as much as humanly possible to do some interesting things, whatever they are. It doesn't always have to be about money, almost best if it's not, in fact. Um, but you certainly need to try a few different things. Like I try and encourage my my children the same way to, you know, you really everyone, everyone should be forced to work in a restaurant. Um, every every person should be in an ER for a couple of weeks, as many of my family are doctors. Um, and everyone should work in a restaurant. So I, I think if you can get exposure to the reality of life uh, from, from these very privileged positions, um, you're going to be, you know, you'll learn a lot more than you might learn just going through the traditional paths. At least that's been true for me. I'm also, I love the fact that, you know, although it is a little overwhelming today that everybody seems to want to be an entrepreneur, um, hey, you know, what's a better option than that is the way I look at it, you know? so. Um, we're encouraging a lot of people to take uh, sensible risks on themselves, you know, bet on themselves. And like I say, at least in America, um, people tend to lean into helping you out, which I've certainly found to be the case. So, Wow, thank you. Um, and finally, anything you miss about the UK particularly? Well, I don't miss losing on penalties, I can tell you that. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I miss plenty about it. My entire family's there. Both of my brothers are there. My parents are still alive and they're there. So at the same time, there are hundreds of them. You know, my father was the youngest of 12 children. So I have like hundreds and hundreds of uh, family members littered across London. Um, but, and you never really get the same sense of humor. You know that, of course. I mean, when I first came to America on public television, there was no satire at all. Uh, and then we slowly introduced the Daily Show and some other things. And now there's a lot more satire. Although, of course, like, you know, uh, John Oliver being on television here and some of the other British people are part of the satire wave, to be fair. Um, so, yes, some of that humour. Um, and uh, my boys have been in England enough uh, and they've been to, you know, football games enough that they at least have, we've built some of that into them. So um, I miss that. Uh, I definitely miss that. Oh, you're, you're making me remember I, I grew up uh, with my dad watching Cheers and Frasier, um, which felt pretty close to British humour, I have to say. Yes, it's um, funny. Cheers is the one show when I lived in England that I watched that was American. It's funny you mentioned that. Yeah, that was a, was yeah. a terrific, terrific show. Um, Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, it's amazing to hear about Steve the musician, Steve the entrepreneur. Steve, the corporate executive, bringing all of that uh, together. We're not, we're not done yet. You have to come back in 40 years and see how the next 40 years go, and I'll let you know. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on Brits and the Big Apple. 
You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, brought to you by the British Consulate in New York. If you'd like to hear more about the work of the British Consulate, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at UK in New York. Thank you for listening.